Exodus is going to talk about the, the life of Moses. I looked over the Sundays that I've been, and I think in February I spoke on uh, Dale Valente, and then I spoke on Abraham, and then I spoke on Joseph, and uh, tonight's Moses, and next time's David, and then possibly Jeremiah, uh, and that'll be me finished. <laughs> So if you have a Bible with you and turn to Exodus chapter 2, we're going to read a bit from Exodus 2 tonight. And then into Exodus 3. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer... She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. It's amazing how events work out in the providence of God, isn't it? Um, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moshe, Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. There's a play on words there we won't go into. In chapter 3, it tells us that Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the, an angel, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, 
I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Amazing. What a life. What a beginning to a life under the whip. He was born under the whip when the, the Israelites were slaves in bondage. We had to get on our, uh, our seven league boots and move from the time of Joseph to the time of Moses. Joseph was probably around uh, B.C. 1900. And I think Moses is around B.C. 1300. Um, and the people of God um, were now under the heel of the Egyptians and under the religion of the Egyptians trying to be uh, replaced the, the, the religion of the Jews with their 702 gods. Um, and you find God's people in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, you don't find them in the palaces and in the temples. You find them in the slave camps being slaughtered and defeated and beaten and subjected to all manner of humiliation, just as Christians are today. If you go to Egypt or you go to North Korea, you find that Christians are having a hard time. Well, the Jews were having a hard time in Egypt. And when you're finding God's people, that's where you find them. And you find God's plan working out. It's really odd, as I say, how things work out, isn't it? In the providence of God. Um, I, people use us as a dumping ground. I don't know about you, but we're a dumping ground and, a, and an information center. You know, folk ask, phone up and ask, do you know anybody in Hong Kong, George? <laughs> Stuff like that. And uh, last weekend, a guy gave me six suits. They don't fit me, but they'll fit somebody else. <laughs> six suits he gave me. And he gave me a, a massage cent, uh, center system, I think it's called. You, you, you put it in a chair. Have you heard of such a thing? And you plug it in as a transformer, and uh, it heats up and it vibrates. And you just shut your eyes, you're away in some dreamy country being massaged by some, uh, I don't know, use your imagination. Anyway, <laughs> my back's all right. I've never had any back problems. But uh, I prayed to the Lord to lead me to somebody that would find this useful. It was in the box, and there was all the instruction leaflet and the whole thing, and I, I, met, I, I, I was in a prayer meeting yesterday, and I said, any of you guys got a sword back? And I said, well, I've got, I'm always, always plagued with a sword back. I said, well, I've got the very thing for you. And I said, he said, could I see it? I said, sure. But we're not usually out at church. I'm away preaching somewhere. But this morning, because I was preaching somewhere at half past 11, we were able to go to the early service at, uh, uh, not Inverness, <laughs> where am I now? Kirkintilla. <laughs> And, uh, and I'm going out the door, and this guy's coming in the door. And I said, is your car handy? I've got that thing in the boot, just in case I met up with you. 
Oh, right, he says, he says, we can't get parked. My wife's in the car there. I said, well, I'm just over there. We'll transfer this thing into your car. And I thought, that was providential. You know, that was providential. So I hope he gets his sword back improved uh, this week. But it's all providential. God did wonderful things. Um, in his providential guidance, he took Amram and Jochebed and this wee boy, Moses, and led them. And there's a family here with a problem because they've got a cruel ruler, the pharaoh of Egypt. There was probably either Sethos the first or Ramesses the second, and they were the, the rulers of Egypt were set to grind down the Jews. And the family was also in a degraded position as a slave family member of the Hebrew race in a situation of slavery in an atmosphere of idolatry. And they worked out, there was a continuing risk because the decree went out that the, the Hebrew midwives weren't doing their job properly. The, the mothers were too robust and the babies were coming too quick. <laughs> and they gave an order that they should um, kill off the baby boys. And so... Here's a family with a, a cruel ruler in a degraded position and a continuing risk and a bonny baby called Moshe. We Moshe. Uh, but there's not only a family with a problem, there's, there's a mother with a plan here. And that's good. You know, God works through mothers. Um, she had a sense of privilege belonging to the Hebrew race and she wanted to protect the line and have her wee baby looked after by God. And she had, a, as well as a sense of privilege, she had a burden of prayer to look after this child. She didn't want him killed. And so she made this ark of bulrushes. She had a routine of preparation. I've noticed ladies are far better planners generally than men are. And uh, she, she planned it all out and prayed to God and an action of faith, she put the child, um, she put the child on the river Nile, and God looked after him. And one of the, probably a girl of the harem, you know, the Egyptians were a bit harem scarem, and up in the north in the in the Delta area, um, they went for duck shooting weekends, you know, and uh, they had this a harem they could use and uh, it was the school that the children of the harem were sent to was manned usually by ex-army officers in a strict discipline and that's where Moses was brought up he was brought up in all the wisdom of Egypt under all the discipline of Egypt and it was all part of God's plan um, and you see faith tested here because the mother in a way, puts God on trial when she puts her baby in the bulrushes um, to be looked after. And faith was vindicated because God looked after the wee boy. And then you get Moses. When he grows up, he's so concerned about his nation that one day it tells us in chapter 2, verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. 
He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now imagine, that's one of God's greatest leaders. He killed an Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And God had a purpose for that man. One of the scholars, John Bright, the Old Testament scholar, says, if Moses did not exist, we would have had to invent him <laughs> to explain the historical circumstances of the deliverance of the Jews. And here he is, he buries this Egyptian in the sand, and somebody he speaks to him about it soon afterwards, and Moses has to flee. Oh, he flees to the desert. Now, those who are critical scholars of the Old Testament say that there are four negative areas in the Old Testament, if I can remember them. One is death, one is the darkness, one is the desert, um, and I've forgotten the fourth one. <laughs> the deep, the sea, because they were afraid of the sea. Um, four negative areas in the Old Testament. And so, in a sense, going to the desert was in a way trying to go in the run from God. And God was working in this young man's life. His, his life is divided into three sections. The 40 years where he learned to be a somebody in the Egyptian court. And 40 years in the desert where he learned to be a nobody uh, with a desert family. And then the third 40 years he learned what God can do with a nobody who gives his life to God. And that's what happened to Moses. And you might say to yourself, what use is a desert? Here's a good question. What use is a desert? Well, um, he was trapped in the desert. He was on the run. He was into romance because the, uh, the man who was uh, the priest of Midian, um, he had a pile of daughters, and he landed up in a family with a pile of sisters-in-law. I mean, I can think of better places to be, perhaps, than a big pile of sisters-in-law sisters uh, knocking you about. <laughs> he was on the run. He was into romance. He was under responsibility. He was trapped in the desert. The timing of it tells us that God had a lot of things to do with Moses, and God had to work with him in the solitude and in the silence. Sometimes God lays us aside in the silence and in the solitude to learn his lessons. And so Moses found that in his life. It can be a garret, it can be a sick room, it can be a student hostel, it can be somewhere where you may feel a sense of rejection and failure. He was trapped in the desert. And then he was trained in the desert. God worked in his life. Uh, in Deuteronomy 32 and verses 10 to 12, there's a reference, um, if I can find it, it's bound to be in this Bible somewhere. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 10 to 12. Um, in the desert land, he found him 
In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up his nest and hovers over its young and spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him, and no foreign god was with him. He was trained in the desert. He was found by God. He was surrounded by God. He was cared for God by God. He was guarded and guided by God. He learned what it was to be a shepherd. He learned what it was to be a father. He learned what it was to be a, a husband in the desert, trained in the desert, trapped in the desert, trained in the desert. And you know, the desert can be a place of despair. Um, the Bible tells us about it. Um, a place of despair. Because God's people, Israel, wandered in the desert for 40 years. And they learned lessons in the desert. And their hearts failed them for fear. And they thought they weren't going to get out because when they sent the spies into Canaan, 10 out of the 12 of them brought a bad report. There's giants in the land. There's heavily fortressed cities in the land. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get murdered <laughs> if we go there. And there were two who brought a good report, Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb says, they be bread for us. He says, they're a piece of cake. But God's going to deliver us um, if we go there. Uh, and, and the despair of the desert was something very real in the minds of the Israelites for these 40 years. A place of despair. And that's absolutely definite. Um, they, were, they were taken by God and God under Moses led them out of the land. He went back from the desert to the city and he led them once again into the desert. Trusting in the desert, what can we say about it? We can say, I don't need it. <laughs> when God sends trials into our lives, we sometimes say, I don't need this. Um, things are desperate. I don't need it. I'm tired of it. Another way is we could accept it gladly rather than grudgingly. And sometimes in our lives, the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't change, but we change. And we have sometimes to accept the changes that God brings to us. And we have to accept God's will in our lives. You know, we could say, God brought me here. Some of the most difficult situations that missionary people have found um, have turned out to be ways that God used. Uh, I saw a leaflet on a table this week about Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was the champion wrestler of Wheaton College, Illinois. And he was one of a group of four men who were burdened about a tribe in Ecuador, the, the Auca Indians. And they went out 
to be missionaries to the Auka Indians. And one of his sayings was, he is no fool who, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And the four of them lost their lives on a sandbank in the Kurarai River in Ecuador at the, at the wrong end of an Auka lance. They were speared. Later on, they discovered the Aukas thought when they, they used their cameras, they were capturing their personalities in the cameras. And they all died. It was, I think it was 1956, eh? 1956, uh, these men died. Ed McCulley was another one, and that saint, I can't remember the fourth one, but Jim Elliot. And later on, in the will of God, Jim Elliot's wife, Elizabeth, went out and found the tribe open to the gospel. And a tremendous movement of God's Spirit among the Auka Indians in Ecuador. Sometimes God can use desert experiences. God brought me here. God will keep me here. And he's kept his servants in the most unusual situations. There was a man called Adoniram Judson, a brilliant linguist. And he was supposed to go to India, but he finished up elsewhere. Uh, he was in Burma, and uh, the only house they could get was in the torture execution square in the town, and all they could hear were the cries of the suffering and the dead in that place. And he was imprisoned, and he was tortured. He had his New Testament under his pillow, and he trusted God, and there was a church of 7,000 by the time Adoniram Judson died. He died on board a ship in a voyage to try and improve his health. Um, God brought me here. God will keep me here. God will bless me here. And God wants to come to us and help us to examine where we are as Moses had to examine where he was. God will bless me here. God will teach me here, and God will take me out of here in his good time. And so God gave him a vision. You read all about the vision in chapter 3. I have indeed heard the misery, seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. What did he do? Well, he appeared to Moses. He appeared to Moses. God has angels still. Do you believe in angels? <laughs> you know, God still has angels. Heard two weeks ago about a lady who was comatose. They'd taken away all her support systems. I had been asked to take her funeral. <laughs> and they, I went on holiday. Explain how I was going on holiday. If, if the lady died before I went on holiday, I would stay on and the family would go up and I would join them, or I would come back early to take a funeral, and I came back. I hadn't heard anything, so I phoned the, the, the evening I got home, and the guy said, George, she's recovered. <laughs> they took away all her support systems, and she's recovered. And she recognizes the family, and we're going to have a communion service in her room in the Royal Infirmary in Glasgow on Easter Sunday, and she'll be joining in with us. And I went to see her, and 
I couldn't believe it. The difference in the lady. And she said that in the middle of her crisis, there was a man came and stood at the bottom of her bed all night in the Royal Infirmary. And it wasn't one of the attendants. It was God's angel, she said, that looked after me. Even in my comatose condition, God was with me. And God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Um, in Exodus chapter 3, the bush burned, but it was not consumed. That's, I think that's one of the, the motives of the Church of Scotland, isn't it? Non-consumabatur. Um, the, the bush didn't burn, and they're hoping that their church system won't collapse. Um, but God came to Moses and spoke to him out of the bush and revealed him in a new way, a way that had never been heard before. Who, who sent me, Moses? And I go to them and they say, who sent me? Tell them, I am has sent you. And he gave him a new name uh, that was unrevealed before that and occurs over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the King James translation is uh, Jehovah. Yahweh, the modern scholars think it is. Yahweh. It's a wonderful revelation of who God is because it's part of the verb to be. The, the tetragrammaton, they call it, the four-letter word. It's Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew letters. Um, it's some part of the verb to be in Hebrew. Um, probably a hefiel, probably a causative mood or a tone of the verb. Um, it's part of the verb to be, and it's a word of creation. One of the Jewish rabbis says it means he who causes to be what comes into existence. It's a name of crea God's creative power. And it's a name of God's consistency. He's the I am. It's part of the verb to be. In any circumstance, he is the I am. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in tonight, he is the I am. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes near to us in these circumstances and offers himself to us in the gospel. Come to me, all you who are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will rest you, is the actual text meaning. I will rest you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. It's a name of, of consistency. We can turn to him in any circumstance, any day, any night, and, and call for his help and find him, the, not only the creator God, but the consistent God. His integrity is impeccable. He keeps his promise. And so the third idea behind the name is it's a name of the covenant. It's a name of an, an, a, a continuing agreement between God and his people in the world. In the Old Testament, it was the Jews. In the New Testament, it's the world of the Gentiles also. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile is a phrase in the New Testament. Even to Scotland, this crowd of painted whores that the Romans couldn't even stick and had to get out of the country. is <laughs> even our God. And he sent missionaries to our land. And so we can say, 
I accept this will of God, whatever it is, gladly. Because this God is a trustworthy God, and he will deliver us. And Christ died to deliver us. That's the gospel. Christ died to deliver us. If we were the only sinners in the world, he would still have come and still have died for us. And we're not redeemed, Peter says, with corruptible things like silver or gold. I mean, you really think of silver and gold as incorruptible things. Um, but he says we were redeemed, and he goes away up into another level. He's into the premier division now. Um, the precious blood of Christ. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And at the start of his letter, Peter talks about the sprinkling of the blood for those who belong to God. We can come to him any time and call on him for salvation. And salvation is that the salvation that he gives is sourced in God and his grace and his foreknowledge and his choice and his sovereignty. For by grace you are saved through faith, Paul says in Ephesians 2. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And God has the glory from beginning to end of the salvation process in each of our lives. Even the faith we exercise is God's gift to us. I read in a commentary a couple of weeks ago that he says, you know, God must get the glory for our salvation from beginning to end. He says, what I believe is, and it was an unusual image, I'd never read it before. He says, what I believe is the Holy Spirit tiptoes into our lives and quietly lifts the latch so that when he speaks to us, we're able to go and open the door to, get to our Savior. Wonderful stuff. And that's the Savior, the God that Moses knew, and the God that we can know. And we might be going through desert experiences, but God will take us out in his time because of the love he has for each one of us through Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, our gracious Father.